from sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken torn and ruined from the fall hear my desperation for so long I've pled and prayed God come to my rescue even so the thorn remains still my heart will praise you storms within my troubled soul questions without answers on my faith these billows roll God be now my shelter why are you cast down my soul hope in him who saves you when the fires have all grown cold cause this heart to praise you Should my life be torn from me Every worldly pleasure When all I possess is grief God be then my treasure Be my vision in the night Be my hope and refuge Till my faith is turned aside Lord, my heart will praise you Oh, my soul, put your hope in God My help, my rock, I will praise Him Sing, oh, sing through the storm you're still my God my salvation oh my soul put your hope in God my help my rock I will praise him sing oh sing through the raging storm you're still my God, my salvation. Let's take our Bibles this morning again and turn to Psalm 58. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you, but turn the Old Testament to Psalm 58, and let's stand as we honor that reading of God's Word together this morning. Psalm 58. 
Psalm 58, beginning with verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. Verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous, and surely there is a God who judges on earth. Let's pray together again. There are no... There is no shortage, Father, of the observance of evil and injustice in our world. And just as your word says, it waxes worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Men bringing about evil. Father, as we see and feel it, Lord, show us how to respond to the evil, the wickedness, the sin in the world. God, show us how to pray about it. Because we certainly don't understand it. And teach us, O God, this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. We've been going through a series of messages in the Psalms. And I think, along with most believers, one of the reasons we love the Psalms so much is because the Psalms cover the entire gamut of human emotions, don't they? Times of praise, sing to the Lord, oh, sing to the Lord. And times in which we are scratching our heads and we are with the Lord saying in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or as we looked at last Sunday morning, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, how long? And then we come to this Psalm this morning where we see the psalmist crying out about the injustice and evil he sees in the world. Last Sunday, I preached from Psalm 13 as Tim was alluding to just now before he sang this song from Psalm 42. Uh, the title of the message last Sunday was What Can Miserable Christians Sing or Pray, you might say. And the lament psalms are just that. They're psalms of mourning, mourning over what's going, taking place in our world, what's taking place in our own lives, ways to express that. In fact, most of the psalms are lament psalms. They're not happy-go-lucky psalms. They are laments that end up 
trusting God in the end. And if I could title this morning, rather than titling the message, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? I could title the message, What Can Angry Christians Sing or Pray? Because this is certainly the bent of Psalm 58. You have an angry person. Angry at what they see in the world. Not just an angry person. There's a lot of things we can be angry about and sin. The Bible says be angry and sin not, correct? So this is righteous indignation. This is righteous anger. It is right anger. It is anger that is right because it's directed as what is clearly wrong. And so this psalm is about not explaining to us what, what evil is. I mean, we know what it is, but we don't know why it is, correct? As much as we try, we, we, will talk, we, we talk about the sovereignty of God overall. We look to the cross knowing God ordained the most horrible thing that ever took place in the world was the death of Christ. And so we know that the Lord is sovereign over all, even though we do not know how to reconcile that in our finite human minds, we rest in his sovereignty. But to try to explain the meaning of evil, especially to an unbeliever, it's hard enough for us as believers, is not really completely possible, although the Bible does speak to that. The message this morning and the psalm this morning is not an attempt to explain the meaning of evil and suffering in the world. The message this morning, the Psalm 58 this morning, is a message about how to respond to the evil we see in the world. We can't explain it completely in a way that's going to satisfy the human mind. Our minds are just too small. But we do look to the cross. But what we need to do is be able to respond to the evil that we see in a right way because we certainly, there is no shortage of it around us. Consider this. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, what is it that we're praying? We're praying for Jesus to come back ultimately and set up his kingdom fully and finally. What's Jesus going to do to unrepentant sinners when he comes? He's going to utterly and completely destroy them. And they will spend eternity in hell. So Jesus himself teaches us to pray like Psalm 58 teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come so we can embrace the fullness of your kingdom and the, the unrepentant will be wiped off, evil will be wiped off the face of this earth and we'll live on a new earth forever. That's what Jesus is telling, teaching us to pray. And I say that because when we, when, you, when we read this psalm, if you've never read it before or heard me read it just now, isn't it kind of hard to read? And we've got words of Jesus in the New Testament in the back of our minds like love your enemies and pray for your, those who persecute you. And we're thinking about how do we reconcile that with a psalm like Psalm 58? Psalm 58 is what the type of psalm called an imprecatory psalm. You may not heard that word, and that's not necessarily... Necessary that you be able to define it, but it's necessary that you understand that there are several types of psalms like this in the book of Psalms that are completely God's word as much as any other psalm. An imprecatory psalm is, could be defined this way. It's a prayer or a song even asking God to do what he has promised to do about evil. That's all it is. We're asking God to do what he's already promised to do about evil in the world. Should we not do that? 
it's a hard pill to swallow, perhaps, if you're an unbeliever amongst us this morning. That Christians would actually pray or sing this way about their enemies. But yet, nevertheless, it is what God's word teaches us. These are, as Sam Storms describes, these type of psalms, like Psalm 58. This is not um, calculated petitions. It's not spontaneous explosions of a bad temper. All right? This is, these are calculated petitions. This is not just a sudden outburst of anger at at what someone sees. This is an appropriate, Psalm 58 is an appropriate response to the evil and injustice that David sees. It says it's a miktam of David. We don't know what the word miktam means exactly, but it's a psalm written by David. So the big question this morning is this. How should we respond when we see evil? I'll give you five ways according to this psalm. Number one is this. When we see evil, one way we should respond is we should feel angry and not be silent. Feel angry and do not be silent. When you read verse 1 and 2, I think we see that. What, what, if you look at verse 1 and 2, what, what is it that the psalmist is observing in verse 1 and 2? He's observing injustice in his world, right? And we don't have to look very far to observe injustice in our world. It is all around us. And he observes in verse 1, they're calling right what is wrong and wrong what is right. Does that sound familiar? Do you, verse one, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? The answer is no, verse two. They call right what is wrong. And so, it's an appropriate place for us to observe the wrongs and, and the psalmist is simply standing up, probably, perhaps he's reading this or, or relaying this before a gathered congregation in, the, in his day. I don't know for sure. But he's saying what the people are already saying. They're saying, we're looking around and we're seeing this evil, this injustice. And in our day, it's, it's as if the, I would be standing up and saying, we're looking around and we're hearing people actually protesting that we shouldn't kill, but we should... Uh, not outlaw babies being killed in their mother's wombs. That, that we should be silent about that. That this is, our, that this is their body and men, sh- and, and men sitting in Congress and women sitting in Congress should have nothing to do with what's going on in a woman's uterus, according to Alyssa Milano. Calling right what is wrong. And sometimes... Not every Sunday, but sometimes what you do need from your pastor is a prophetic type of voice. And I think probably in David's day, this time of Sop was written and read in the gathered congregation because the congregation simply needed at that point in time the, the, the leader of the congregation to stand up and say, I see it too. And it angers me about where we're headed, about evil in the world. About people can't even figure out what bathroom to go to anymore. 
They call it right what is wrong. They devise evil in their heart and they deal it from their hands. You see that in verse two? Knowing your heart you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. They devise evil in their heart and deal it from their hands. And so we read in, in our own day and hear about the evil of human trafficking. And some nations even turn a blind eye to that, as in Thailand. Or we hear about ISIS or other terrorist organizations, whether they be Muslim terrorist organizations or Christian terrorist organizations for that matter. We don't hear as much about that or Christians being killed and slaughtered in villages in Africa and other places because of their faith in Christ. Devised in the hearts of evil men and dealt from their hands. What I find interesting about verse 1 and 2 is... You notice how it's written in the first person? He's saying, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? It's like he's talking to these evil, evil doers right in front of him, but he's actually not, I don't think. It's just kind of an odd way of, of praying. Be like me, me sitting here praying, you, you abortion providers, you abortion doctors, do you do what you, you, are you doing what's right? And they're not standing in front of me. So that's why, what the psalmist is doing right here, Right? And again, I think one reason he's doing this and he's been inspired to do it perhaps when it's used in a congregational way is so the congregation will understand, yes, this is how we, this, it is right for us to feel righteous indignation when we see wickedness and injustice in the world. It is right to feel that way. It is right to feel angry about what is wrong in the eyes of God. But it's not only this, this is not just written by David, this is God's word, Right? This is, this is what God, this is how God feels about the wickedness of the world. It's how God feels about Planned Parenthood. It's how God feels about human trafficking and terrorism and about same-sex this and same-sex that. God hates it. He's angry about it. He's angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. Don't think he's aloof that he has no clue. This is our God saying, pray this way, understand, I see it and that's how I feel about it. David Pallison says, it is the anger of God at evil is one of his excellencies. Numbers chapter one, verse two through three says this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Know who the Lord is. He is holy, and he is just, and he is a God filled with wrath. This psalm is for believers. This psalm and this message that I'm preaching is not a hellfire and damnation message where you are supposed to tremble at the wrath of God. No, if you, in fact, if you're a believer, you should be taking hope in the wrath of God. That, that's the, that's, this is saying God's a God of wrath and you're supposed to say, yes! He's a God of justice. It's, it's going on right now, but it's not gonna go on forever. He's coming. He's gonna do away with it. Praise God. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's how we respond to it as believers. Now, if you're not a believer, you should tremble. 
You should run to the cross in your heart right at this moment because his wrath is coming against you because you are no better and I am no better. But my sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. But this is a psalm of hope for us. It's a, there's a heaviness to it, but it's not supposed to keep us there. It's to bring about hope and rejoicing and knowing that God will do what he said he's going to do. So an imprecatory psalm is a prayer asking God to do what he's always already promised to do about evil. So feel angry, number one, and do not be silent. Notice in verse one it says, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? That's the SV translation, English Standard Version, that I'm preaching from. Some translations have other words there. It's a very difficult word, gods, to translate. Of course, there's not many gods, there's one God, but there are leaders in the world who make themselves out to be gods. That's sort of the meaning here. You who think you're gods, you're leaders, you're rulers. But another way that word could be translated is literally silent. It could be translated, do you indeed decree what is right and you're silent? So it's a very difficult Hebrew word to translate. So no matter whether the meaning is you who are rulers and, and you're doing injustice in the world, you're seeing wrong and you're just being quiet about it. And that's what the psalm is seeing. You're supposed to be doing what's right and you see wrong and you're quiet about it. That could be the meaning, not sure. Either way, David's not being quiet about it. David's calling it out and he's saying something about it in this prayer. So real quick point of application, feel angry and do not be silent as this. It is right to be angry about what is wrong. It is wrong to do nothing about what is wrong. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond to evil in a way that glorifies God? How do we respond to evil when we see it? Well, we feel angry and we're not silent. We, we, but what, what do we actually do? Number two. In thinking about that question, what do we do? Remember the spiritual nature of evil doers. So as you're thinking about what to do about the evil that you see, because you want to do something about it, right? Makes you mad, makes you angry to hear about these, these children being slaughtered in the wombs. That are, I, I, don't even, I don't know any other evil any worse than that. So that's the reason I keep coming back to it. And you want to do something about it. But, but this is what you got to keep in mind. Remember the spiritual nature of these evildoers. They are sinful from birth. Verse 3, look at it. Isn't that what the Bible says? The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now isn't that interesting that the psalmist calls it out, but yet David himself writes in Psalm 51 that he was conceived in sin conceived in sin himself and brought forth in iniquity. But here he looks at the evildoers and he says, they were conceived in sin. He basically the same thing. What's the difference? None. We, we all have the same origin as abortion doctors. We are astray from birth. We are speaking lies from birth. We are satanic our father was the devil before God was our father by adoption through Jesus. Difference is 
David is not continuing to astray from birth. He has repented. And what we see in verses 3 through 5 and following in this prayer is this prayer against these evildoers are evildoers who will not repent. They refuse to repent. They continue to go astray from birth. That's the point. We're no better, but by grace, we have stopped going astray. We struggle with indwelling sin, but by God's grace, we sin less than we used to. And we mourn over our sin when we do. Not only are they sinful from birth, but they're satanic to the end. It says there, they're speaking lies, and I alluded to this just a moment ago. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells the religious leaders of the day, he says, you're of your father, the devil. There's no truth in him. He speaks lies. You're just like your father, the devil. They're sinful from birth, and they're satanic to the end. They're unrepentant again. I want you to see this underscored in verses four through five. Look at your Bible. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent. It's talking about like a snake, cobra. Like the deaf adder, another, another type of a poisonous snake. Like the deaf adder that stops its ear, verse five, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. So these people are evildoers. They are dangerous. They are poisonous. They're poisonous with, their bite is dangerous. Maybe that means that their words hurt, but even their actions are gonna hurt us as well. And, you know, you, you've seen it probably on TV and stuff like that. This guy's playing his little flute, and a little snake comes up, and that snake's kind of staring. I'm like, man, that guy's crazy. I would never do that, right? But evidently, there's something to that. He says, these people are like this, this cobra, this, this snake, and you and they just, pow, they get you, because you can't charm them. It's like they're deaf to the music. They're untamable. They're uncharmable. They're unrepentant. They're sinful from birth, and they stay that way. They, they're sinful to death. They're satanic to the core to death. And this informs how we pray about evildoers. We'll get to in a moment. But notice what Ecclesiastes 10 verse 11 says. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So here they are, this, this snake's trying to be charmed by music or whatever it is, by the vibrations of the music actually, and I'm not even sure that they can hear the music, but, but it's no good if they bite you before they're in the trance or whatever. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 17 says, For behold, I'm sending among you serpents. God says about the the opponents of Israel, adders that cannot be charmed. Say they cannot be charmed. They will not repent. They, they will not change. They're gonna stay this way. So when we're praying about evildoers this way, we're praying about people who will not repent. They will not be saved. This is their nature. And you need to remember this because we're asking ourselves this question. All right, I'm supposed to feel angry and I'm not supposed to be silent, so what am I supposed to do? You know, it's right to feel angry about evil, but it's wrong to do nothing, so what should I do? Well, you need to remember their spiritual nature of these evildoers. Satanic to the end, sinful from birth. This, what I'm trying to say is this is a spiritual battle and you may want to do something, but it's got to be fought with spiritual weapons, you see? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
Begins principalities and powers and things of this world. So that means Ephesians 6, you've got to put on spiritual armor. And Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about prayer. What, what you've got to do first and foremost before you get involved in the political process, which is important, I understand that. Support Hope Pregnancy Center. Do that. Those are things you can do. and By all means, do it. Stand on the street corner with a protest sign. Do that. But don't do that and neglect prayer. Don't do, neglect, don't do that and think you're going to be more successful by doing that and not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God. This is a spiritual battle. No protest sign is going to take down something spiritual. No politician will do it. No legislation will do it. As important as that is. Remember the spiritual nature of these evildoers. They will not change unless the gospel were to take their hearts. And so many people want to get fired up about the evil they see in the world and what they want to do is join some group or some rally or, or do this or do that. And a lot, of, a lot of it's good stuff. But the last thing that we'd want to do is share the gospel with somebody, which is the most important thing to do. To, 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 to pray, to pray, not just watch Fox News and get mad or worse and worse. You see it and you're just mad and mad and want to throw something at the TV. I do too. Post stuff on Facebook. It's, all right. But it's a spiritual battle. So engage in the spiritual battle in a spiritual way. Do those other things. But don't neglect what's most important. Feel angry and do not be silent. Remember the spiritual nature of evildoers. Thirdly, ask God to completely destroy evil. That's what we see in verses 6 through 9, isn't it? I'm wording it this way because we want him to destroy the root of it, which is Satan himself. But the evildoers come right along with that. Notice he wants, he's praying, Lord, render them powerless. Break, break their teeth in their mouth. Knock their teeth out, right? Just punch them right in the mouth, God. That's what he's saying. God, these evildoers, these abortion providers, these people that do this stuff and that stuff, God, punch them right in the mouth. Make them powerless. Don't let them succeed any longer. And that's how we should pray. God, don't let this evil, you don't have to pray about specific individuals, but just say, God, don't break the Break their teeth. Knock their teeth out. Make them powerless. Don't let their arrows have any point to them. See that? Throughout their fangs, verse 7, when he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Don't let them have any prosperity, any success in their agenda, their evil agenda. Render them powerless. In fact, Lord, remove every trace of them. Look at verse 7. Let them vanish like water that runs, runs away. The water comes down. The water is dangerous. It's a torrent. And then it runs off and it's gone. Lord, let them be like the water. Let them just vanish out of sight. Completely remove their influence. Completely remove them. Verse 8, let them soon be like the snail that dissolves into slime. I know what we used to do to snails growing up. Get you some salt. But the most snails, as they go along, they actually leave a little residue behind themselves before you put salt on them, right? So it could be that the Lord is saying, that we should wish that they would self-destruct. 
they just leave their residue behind. They're, they're, they're destructing from the inside. Like the stillborn child that never sees the sun. That never has a chance for life. Oh God, remove every trace of them. Let them be as if they never existed. And then we're praying, let it be soon. Like before the gas oven ever feels the heat of the stove. You turn it on, before the flame ever even, even, even touches the, the stove and begins to heat that stove, Lord, let, them, let, it, let it happen that quickly. See it? We don't, we don't have pots that we warm up with thorns and briars, do we? At least I don't. But verse 9 says, Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Lord, render them powerless. Remove every single trace of them. Let it be as if they never were, as if this evil never existed. And let it be soon. Lord, do it now. End it now. End this evil right now. How do we reconcile these texts? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And yet the New Testament also says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, they're in heaven with Jesus. And they're still praying this way. They're praying Psalm 58 in heaven with Jesus. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So we see in the New Testament both. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Lord, oh God, judge them, avenge our blood. How long before you will do that? So how do we pray biblically? This is how I pray, and I think it's the right way. We pray this way. We pray, oh God, save their souls. I'm going to pray for my enemies. God, save their souls. Put somebody in their path that will preach the gospel to them and share the gospel to them. But Father, if they be like the the cobra, the snake that will not be charmed, if they are going to remain unrepentant. You know that. I don't, Lord. Save them. But if they will not be saved, if they will not repent, then, Lord, remove them now. If they're just going to refuse to, be re to repent, remove that evil now. Remove those evildoers. Judge them. Get rid of them. Destroy them. That's what, that's what the psalmist is praying, is it not? So that's how I pray about abortion. God, use our church, use us to help women who are suffering because they have committed abortion or, or, or young men who've encouraged their girlfriends to do so. And Lord, help us to minister and serve. And, and, and Lord, those abortion doctors and, and nurses, God, I, but we pray for them to be saved. If you know one by name, pray for them to be, to be saved. But, but God, for those that are involved in that evil doing, whether it's abortion or whether it's human trafficking or, or whatever evil it is in the world, God, for those involved in that evil that you know that will not repent, God, remove them. Completely remove them. Judge them. Wipe, wipe them out. Remove them. Let them not succeed. 
Fourthly, we re- how do we respond when we see evil? We rejoice in the satisfaction of justice. We rejoice in the satisfaction of justice. I think verse 10 is a difficult verse. But before I dive into it, let me just mention O.J. Simpson trial and his acquittal. A lot of you remember that. For most people, it was outrage. For many people, uh, too blinded by uh, abuses from the past to see the reality of the, of the present. They actually rejoiced in his acquittal. But for the rest of us, we cried injustice. <laughs> injustice. I was watching them on PBS a couple of weeks ago, the trial of Ratko Mladic, who was a Serbian general during the, the war in Bosnia, who ordered the max execution of thousands and thousands and thousands of young men, of men in different Bosnian Muslim villages, and uh, young boys as well, boys that were 12, 13. My son Josiah's aging up. They'd round them up, and they'd, and almost every, all these thousands and thousands, they'd just shoot them in the head. Almost all of them had a bullet hose in the, in the back of their head. Some of their bodies, they would take them and cut them up and place them in different places throughout the nation of Bosnia so that they could see that they were thoroughly being dealt with by the Serbian Christians, Serbian Orthodox Christians. And finally, Ratko Mladic was brought to trial year before last and was sentenced and wasn't executed, but he was the general accused of knowing about this and organizing it and sentenced for life. And the people that were the, uh, you know, trying to get him the sentence and so forth, they rejoiced that justice had been accomplished. But then again, you thought to yourself, this guy is responsible for thousands of people. How could a 76-year-old man spending life in prison, how is that really justice? He's bad health anyway, just had a couple strokes. He's going to have three meals and a cot. How is that really justice? Or how is it when we find out that somebody committed some atrocity and they say so-and-so was a, a guilty verdict was handed down and they received three life sentences? That doesn't make any sense. Isn't that what you're thinking when you hear that? Three life sentences. Well, great. What is that? It, it seems often as if here in this world, even when there is justice being sought, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Sometimes it's the other way around, but many times it's not. And what's going on in verse 10 then, if you look at it, is this. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. The righteous will rejoice when he sees justice. Complete and thorough justice. Not this human attempt at justice because it's the Lord that's going to be doing it. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, does that mean that what's going on here is the psalmist wants to take his shoes and his socks off and take the blood that's, that's in a pool, uh, in, a, in a mud hole, and put it on his feet and wash his feet off in blood? He just can't wait to do that. He has some gory fascination with taking a bath in somebody's blood. It seems that way when you read it. But I think what it means is this. Lord, so utterly destroy these evildoers who will not repent that it is obvious 
that they've been destroyed because there's enough blood around, they would be enough blood around to bathe our feet if we wished to do so. In other words, he's saying, Lord, utterly destroy them and let it be obvious that it's taken place. Lots of blood is an evidence of the death of evildoers. Ezekiel 33 says, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So that's not what's taking place here. It would contradict Ezekiel 33. You understand? They're not rejoicing in the suffering of evildoers. We're not to be longing for unrepentant sinners to suffer. We're longing for the satisfaction of God's justice. For the, that, what, we're rejoicing in justice being satisfied. That, that's our aim. That's our goal. We rejoice in the satisfaction of justice. Let me speak about it this way. When Jesus dies the most horrible death on the cross, and we sing about the cross, in the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. That's like singing, in the gas chamber, in the gas chamber, be my glory ever. In the firing squad, in death by lethal injection, by hangman's gallows. That's crazy. And Jesus suffered on the cross. Are we rejoicing in the fact that he physically suffered on the cross? No. We're rejoicing that through his suffering, justice is satisfied. And, and so that's what's taking place here. Rejoicing not in the, the, the brutality and suffering of our enemies, but we're rejoicing that justice is finally being satisfied fully and finally like no human court could ever do. For on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what we rejoice in. We don't take pleasure in the fact that Jesus suffered on the cross. Fifthly and finally, a way to respond to evil when we see it is to glorify God by waiting for the Lord's vengeance. Waiting for the Lord's vengeance. Look at verse 11. Mankind will say, are you looking at your Bible, verse 11? Mankind will say, when this has happened, Surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on earth. So mankind will observe. The righteous, those that have sought the Lord, he has vindicated them. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. You see, God's being glorified. And so... When the Lord executes this kind of justice, God is glorified. Mankind will say, surely there's a God on earth who judges. So fifthly, we would say, glorify God for waiting for the Lord to do this, waiting for the Lord to execute this vengeance. Because when he does it, he'll be glorified. So wait for that. Wait biblically for the Lord to do vengeance on wickedness, on abortion providers, on, on all the wickedness that we see in the world. Romans chapter 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You hear that? Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, to the contrary. So, so the, to the contrary, rather you take it in your own hands, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't let it get the best of you. But overcome evil with good. Validate the gospel by praying for your enemies and loving your enemies. And at the same time, praying for God to remove those enemies who will not repent. Save them. And Lord, if they will not be saved, remove them and remove them now. Remove this evil. Glorify God, number five, by waiting for the Lord's vengeance. So let me give you some points of application. I'm going to be done. We are not instructed to be a means of God's vengeance. You see this? We see it in Romans 12. You are not instructed to be a means of the Lord's vengeance. So we don't resort to violence. The crusades were wrong, Christian crusades. Bombing abortion clinics or assassinating abortion doctors is not what we're supposed to do. It's not. Well, I hope we all know that. But I think where we are more prone to err by not waiting for God to get vengeance, but kind of taking it in our own hands and robbing God of the glory due his name by waiting for him to execute vengeance, is sometimes we're not careful with our words about the evil that we see. Our response to evil sometimes is like, is this. Well, I think we ought to just go over and wipe them all out. I've said that kind of thing before in the past and realized it's kind of foolish to say that. I kind of feel that way sometimes. I understand. But to say to somebody, especially that's an unbeliever, I think we'll just go wipe them all out. is not a good thing to say. Or to open up our Facebook post and we're angry at the evil that we see and we just begin to not think about words that we say and whoever, who all is going to see this, especially non-Christians going to see it and we post these things on social media or we forward things on social media that is really just a rant and a rave. I'll, I'll, I, you really need to be careful. You understand? Let the Lord, you don't need to get vengeance by opening up your mouth and saying foolish things or posting things that are foolish and unwise and unbiblical. Be careful with your words. It's not easy to do. That's the first thing. That's the reason the first thing you ought to do is you ought to pray and really pray about the evil that you see. And then be careful with your actions. Kind of goes along with that. Your words and your actions. Um, when you feel wronged about something, what are you supposed to do? Pray about it and let the Lord take care of it. Don't allow yourself to rob God of his glory in a situation you've experienced under the guise of, I'm defending myself. Well, you got in a fight at school and you punched them back in the nose? Good for you. Just like I told you. Don't take nothing off of nobody. Nope. That's not biblical. You get away from them if you can. You put your hands up. And if you have to, you hit back to defend yourself. 
But if somebody comes up and shoves you, you don't mean you turn around and you say, well, just don't take it off of them no more, son. Next time they do that, you punch them one time right there, and I guarantee they won't do that again. Well, they might not, but God won't be glorified in that. Mankind may say, wow, you really took up for yourself, but mankind will not say, surely there's a God who judges on earth because you did it yourself. You pulled out your 38 and ran off the guy or shot the guy or whatever. Sometimes that's going to have to happen. I understand that. Not saying not to arm ourselves and things like that. I'm going to believe that. But I think that's the that's way we want to think about things sometimes. Whether you want to hear it or not. So, let me uh, conclude the message this way. We need to praise God for his mercy and grace toward us, don't we, folks? That we're not the, we've went astray from birth. But by God's grace, we're not straying any longer. That the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all who were like sheep going astray. That justice, our justice, was satisfied by the wrath of by the blood of Jesus. And we should praise God for Jesus. He's bore our wrath and he's bore our shame on the cross. And so when we see evildoers, let us remember where it is that we would be without the grace of God. Let us pray for their salvation. Let us seek to serve where we can. And let us pray biblically for Jesus to come back and do away with them once for all at the same time. It's kind of a quandary almost, but it's biblical. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. 
At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. 